Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It's that time of the day. We sit down. We have not one, not two, but three martinis. I'm Chad Benson in for Greg Corumbus this week. Jim Garrity, as always, is here. And uh, Jim, we got the good, we got the bad, we got the crazy. We're going to start with the good. When your back's against the wall and you're facing either re-election or potentially a recall, it seems to be that governors decide to do things that make people happy. Phil Murphy is part of that. Yeah, Chad, I'm glad you brought that, made that allusion to Gavin Newsom out in California facing the uh, the recall election out there. It's kind of amazing what having to face the voters will do. Not only did that, uh, as soon as that recall went through, we started seeing California making some big steps towards opening up. Uh, Phil Murphy, who I think is underrated in his terribleness as a uh, governor of a state, I believe New Jersey still has the highest per capita deaths per uh, in the country. And he also did things like violating his own mass gathering order during the Black Lives Matter protests and things like that. Well, Phil Murphy, who will be up for re-election in November, has decided that not, not only will all students be back in the classroom in September, and thankfully most school districts across the, across the country have made taken that stance. Murphy's gone one step further. He says full-time remote learning option will not be available for the 2021-2022 school year. So everything that is uh, not permitted is mandatory. Uh, I'm glad to see this. It's good for kids in New Jersey. Uh, they were on the slower side of reopening their public schools. I do think it's kind of interesting that, you know, now that all, there's almost a very broad consensus, even the teachers unions aren't saying, oh, we can't open up in September. Uh, or at least only a handful of them are still clinging to that position. Now, now Governor Phil Murphy is like, oh, no, we have to open. In fact, you won't be allowed to continue online learning come September. Yeah, of course. And uh, I was listening to a couple of buddies of mine out there in California, uh, uh, John and Ken, saying, you know what, with the way that Gavin Newsom's acting, maybe they should just keep him in the perpetual recall fear <laughs> to get them to do something where if you thought you might lose your job tomorrow, you're more apt to actually try to save your job today. And Phil Murphy, you're right. The underratedness of uh, he was he was a mini dictator for a while there and just seemed to run with this and unwinding the power from these people in in these times is extremely tough. You know, I think uh, uh, it's one of the things that you, when you're the governor of New Jersey, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, so I, I, could, I, I could make a whole bunch of New Jersey jokes here. But let's observe Andrew Cuomo is eating up a lot of the oxygen in the media in the media room, so to speak, uh, with his management of the uh, uh, the pandemic, which got ludicrously overpraised in the opening months and has had a whole bunch of scandals since then. The national media is always also interested in arguing that uh, Ron DeSantis is the root of all evil down in Florida. Uh, some criticism for Brian Kemp in Georgia and Greg Abbott in Texas. And I think Phil Murphy just kind of uh, gets lost in the shuffle there, even though I think you look at the experience of New Jersey, it is almost as dramatic as the one or very comparable to the experience of New York State. Uh, Phil Murphy is just not as high a profile a governor, but perhaps he should be. Yeah, when you're when you're when you're facing uh, the things that he has done and uh, the fact that, again, the the next door neighbor is is rather popular with his Emmys and his massive book deal and and all the ladies. Uh, it's hard to compete with that. It is the three martini lunch. I'm Chad Benson in for Greg Columbus. Jim Garrity is always joining us here. We just finished the good and we've got other good stuff.
Indeed. You know, we just said Phil Murphy wasn't generating as much uh, interest as his neighbors. But you know, today's low interest rates, it's a great time to refinance your student loans. Say goodbye to stressful student loan payments and take charge of your future with Earnest. Earnest offers low rate student loans. This low rate student loans refinancing. You can check your rate risk-free in just two minutes. And with Earnest, you get a radically flexible payment. And you can pick your loan term. And if you have any questions, you can even talk to a real life human, which is amazing because as we all know, that's tough to do. Ernest is now offering our listeners a $100 cash bonus. You can refinance your student debt at earnest.com slash martini. Terms and conditions apply. Ernest student loan refinancing made by Ernest Operations, LLC, NMLS, number 1204917, California Financing Law License, number 6054788, 303 2nd Street, Suite 401 North, San Francisco, California, 94107. Visit Ernest.com licenses for a full list of their licenses. So we move from the chaos and the craziness of the good to the bad when it comes to this. And and I, I tell you what, Jim, this is a it's no longer a surge. It's it, the 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 word police have arrived and they have been told, hey, at the border, it's not a surge. I've always joke and say they're just wandering nomads looking for a place to grow unicorns and their utopia. But it is ridiculous now that we have this word police. So it's not a surge at the border. What is it? No, here's the great irony is this comes after last month when, you know, no less than President Biden himself referred to a crisis at the border. And then Jen, Jen Psaki, she circled back on that and said, no, 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 it's not a crisis. Of course, then you read to the headline, Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, calls, says Biden does not see the border influx as a crisis right after he called it a crisis. But a crisis is off the menu. At least we could call it a surge. No, apparently we can't call it a surge. Our friends over at the Washington Free Beacon, Joseph Simonson reports that the Associated Press has now recommend journalists no longer use the word surge because such descriptions could cause offense and would not maintain supposed neutrality. I'm very, you know, the great irony, of course, is that you know documents circulated internally by the Customs and Border Protection are calling it a surge of undocumented individuals. <laughs> so Customs and Border Protection calls it a surge. What do you want to call it? A crowd? A, a mob? A, a, you know, is this one of those things where it's like it's a flock of geese? It's uh, you know, there there are strange words, a murder of crows, these unusual words you use for groups of things. Is there some special term you're supposed to use for large amounts of undocumented people trying to cross the border? I, I, I don't know anymore. And I've been in newsrooms where they'll send out stuff saying these are the words you can't use anymore in situations like this. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't know who we're trying to protect. You can't even use the words that they're using on the border by the people that are doing the job on the border. You call it a, a tsunami? Is that Can we use that? Or is that too much climate change? You, I, I don't know. It's uh, at Chad, this point that's in time, destructive it's a, and probably offensive yeah, to tsunamis. Yeah, probably. It's 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 insane and it's sad. But that's the world we have right now, which is let's change the vernacular, let's change all the words we possibly can, let's make everything fluffy. It's just, uh, I 
I don't know. An influx? Is that, is that, yeah. can we use that? Or is that? But even that's underplaying. Like, here's the thing by any objective standard, this is a surge, right? You know, if you want to say there was an argument early on, Biden insisted this was a seasonal pattern. It had always gone up in February and March. And yeah, there was a historical pattern for this. You generally get more in the spring and it slows down as the summer heat kicks in. But uh, what we saw in March was the highest figure they'd seen in about two decades. And if you wanted to say, okay, I I was even open to the possibility, all right, maybe it is a one-month surge. Maybe there is some sort of unique set of factors in Central America or in Mexico that's driving this. No, no. April's numbers were even higher than March's. When you have two months in a row that are highest in two decades, it's not a a blip. It's not a a, uh, a one-time thing. It is a surge. You might even say it's a crisis if people were allowed to use those words anymore. Not allowed to use those. I think we all know that. It's it's about feelings, not facts. Chad Benson in for Greg Columbus. It's three martini lunch, and uh, let's talk a little pillow action. You know, you will want to wrap yourself up in the soothing, soft feel of a MyPillow towel. They're currently offering a six-piece towel set, regularly $109.99, now for just $44.98. Yeah. You get two bath sheets, two hand towels, one two-pack washcloth, soft to the touch, no lotion-y feel, super absorbent, 10-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee. It's washable. It's dryable. I have them. I love them. Made with cotton grown right here in the United States, and you get a variety of colors to choose from. Go to MyPillow.com and click on Radio Listener Square and enter the promo code MARTINI, or you can call 1-800-874-0104. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow Premium Pillows, and the new My Slippers. Get your MyPillow six-piece towel set for just $44.99, only with the My promo code Martini. Once again, call 1-800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. We've had the good, we've had the bad. Now it's time, well, you know, I I look at this one and I think to myself, it's the crazy. Finally, we're going to talk about the lab leak, the theory of the lab leak, which a lot of people have asked questions about. But if you were doing that while Trump was still in office, uh, Jim, you you were a conspiracy theory. Now that he's gone and people see that China hid a lot of stuff, you're no longer in the conspiracy theory. You may be on to something. Yeah. And it really does feel like in the last couple of days, there's been this fairly significant shift in the conventional wisdom. Um, A couple prominent examples. There were 18 scientists who wrote to Science Magazine uh, saying that it was very, you know, that you really couldn't rule either one out and it was time to uh, examine it more closely. Robert McNeil, who used to be a science correspondent for the New York Times for a lot of years until the younger staffers decided that he was the most dangerous man in the world. Um, He wrote on his Medium post that uh, the argument has become considerably stronger than it was a year ago. Um, By the way, I don't think, and we'll get into this in a second, I don't think that, that the facts that have come to light completely change the look of what things were a year ago. Um, yeah, I think some people might say, hmm, is it different? maybe it's more to do with who actually president in the United States uh, a year ago compared to now. But I think probably the biggest and kind of the flashing neon sign of change comes from the Washington Post editorial board just yesterday, where they wrote that, if, quote, if a laboratory leak theory is wrong, China could easily clarify the situation by being more open and transparent. Instead, it acts as if there is something to hide, unquote. Um, now, look, I've been writing about this for the better part of a year. I think it is more likely than not, although I think it's pretty clear, you know, it's entirely possible. We'll never know definitively. Um, 
I'm glad that you're seeing this change in thinking from the Washington Post editorial board and Donald McNeil, uh, even Matt Iglesias and, and you know, folks who are saying, OK, yeah, we really can't rule it out. It looks more plausible. Having said that, I went back and I looked at my first really big piece that I'd written in April, and a lot of the, the basics of the case were there from the beginning. Yes, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was studying novel coronaviruses found in bats, as was the centers, Wuhan, Wuhan Centers for Disease Control. Chad, let's think about this. Of all the places in the world, it happened. To, the outbreak happened to start in a city that has not one, but two labs that were working on viruses found in bats. That's a really amazing coincidence if some third path brought this virus to the middle of the city. Um, it's No, it's not within the natural migration patterns of the kinds of bats that are most likely to have these kind of viruses. Um, a lot of us noticed in that early Scientific American article that Xi Jingli, the Chinese virologist nicknamed Batwoman, said her first thought was, could they have come from our lab? She insists they did not, but, you know, it's entirely possible the Chinese government is lying. Um, a lot of the speculation in the first couple of months talked about the idea of whether there was some intermediate species. Did it come straight from a bat or was there some other mammal that the virus kind of had to percolate in before it jumped to humans to make it so contagious amongst human beings? Um, one of the you know, species that was discussed a lot was pangolins. Look, for what it's worth, um, we still don't know that definitively. And in fact, there's no evidence that pangolins were at the Huanan seafood market. There's no idea that vendors trafficked in pangolins. So that piece of the puzzle is missing. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, sorry, yeah. And just kind of finally, this, you know, when the Chinese government says, oh, it wasn't us, like, look, they lie. <laughs> they lie a lot. They lied for the first three to six weeks about this, insisting this virus could not be spread from human being to human being. Now, you lay all that out. That's not by itself, a, but it's a circumstantial evidence to say, OK, this does not seem like the craziest scenario in the whole wide world. No, I had Jamie Meltzer on when he first uh, came out mm. and was starting to say, look, we need to seriously look at this. Not only was he worried about this, he says, you know, five years before there was a copper mine incident where they sent people down to clean up a mine that had closed and all six of the people that went to clean it up got very sick, something extremely similar to this. Three of the six died. They took the samples and kept them. And he doesn't think it's anything nefarious outside of the cover-up. But he said it. this was not something that came. There was no bats at this time. The bats that they would say that were out there, uh, it was winter. There was no bats. None of these things were available the way that they say they were. And the fact that they took all the information down almost immediately and stopped access for everybody to go look on the Wuhan lab site. And then that joint press conference that was an absolute joke between the World Health Organization says a lot more about hiding something than than not. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is a it, it's been a very illuminating process. Um, look, you know, is, is wet markets by themselves. One, from the very beginning, I was one of the folks who thought a wet market was the most likely scenario because virologists, epidemiologists had said, wow, you got a lot of live animals being slaughtered in an unsanitary process around lots of people. They're really crammed in. This is exactly the kind of circumstance that a virus could jump from an animal species to a human species. So by that standard, you mean, OK, that makes sense. Um, the problem here is that, uh, it, as I mentioned, you know, the idea that it doesn't found pangolins, there's no evidence there were bats, the proximity of the market to these, uh, these two laboratories and such. Um, look, I, I don't like animal smugglers. I, I don't think like poachers and people who are, I think the pangolin's an endangered species, and I think it's the single most smuggled species in the whole wide world, all around Asia and all places like that. 
So if the villain of this story turns out to be animal smugglers, fine, I, I you know, go after them. But I admit animal smugglers are a much more convenient villain for the governments of the world than if it's, say, a Chinese research program that was reckless and not careful. And, oh, by the way, may be involved in researching bioweapons. We should point out that a lot of biological research around viruses is dual use. You can, you know, uh, do both uh, um, gain of function research and just general holding on to these samples because you want to know how to fight them. You want to know how to develop treatments for them. You want to know how to develop a vaccine for them. All that stuff is perfectly legitimate research. But everything you're learning in that process could also be applied to developing a bioweapon if you wanted to do something like that. China insists it has no bioweapons program, but U.S. intelligence cannot confirm their denials. And we're pretty darn sure that they've had bioweapons programs in the past. So you lay all that out. The idea that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was up to no good, that it was doing some sort of research that it knew could be uh, extremely scandalous and extremely consequential if it was ever exposed on the world stage. Um, look, that's a really that's a scenario I suspect a lot of people around the world don't want to deal with, because if the villain of this story is the Chinese government, then all of a sudden you've got real big problems down the road. Then all of a sudden, everybody who's lost a loved one to this virus is really, really mad at the Chinese government, like for the rest of their lives. So the whole idea of, ah, it just happened naturally. It's just really bad luck. It just happened to be, uh, we haven't found the bat that has this virus, but you know, the, the bat jumped into, the virus jumped from the bat to the human, and that's what's, what set this all off. That's a scenario that prevents the rest of the world from having to reckon with what kind of government they have over in China and what it's capable of. Absolutely. Hey, happy Tuesday, everybody. Happy Tuesday, indeed. Always good to be here, Jim. I appreciate it. Again, I'm in for Greg Columbus. I'm Chad Benson. You can follow me at Chad Benson Show. Why don't we do it again tomorrow? Looking forward to it, Chad. Hey, guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave Leave a comment or review and subscribe.